This is the Word Fitly Spoken Podcast. I'm Pastor Willie Grills, here with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi, here today to talk to you about mission, the mission of the church, and particularly the Great Commission. How's it going, Zelwyn? Doing pretty well. Um, been a little sick lately, but I think we'll 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 pull through. This yeah, this we'll will be a, we'll, a good conversation. Yeah, we'll barrel <laughs> barrel right on through there. So mission mission is very important. Every denomination talks about it. Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, everybody has their understanding of it, their own unique niches. Uh, what's going to be our jumping off point today, Zelwyn? Where do we start really with everything that we talk about here at Word Fitly? Well, the word, obviously. There we go. Yeah, good. <laughs> Always a good place to start. To, to go to what God has said. And uh, there's probably no more natural place in all of Scripture to talk about mission than uh, the Great Commission itself. Uh, Willie, do you have uh, Matthew 28 in front of you? Would you be able to read I that? I do. I do. Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16. So here we go. And I'm sorry, Zelwyn, I'm actually reading from the New King James Version today because that's what's closest to me. So <laughs> God's Version. So, Forgive me, forgive me. The new King James, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. So, then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. And that Amen. closes out the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, we have so much going on here. I think it's worthwhile to just break it down a little bit and just talk about what Jesus is saying. And so you have Jesus speaking to the eleven, um, you know, who had come to Galilee and who, just as Jesus had told them. And what's the first thing that he actually says? Well, let's hold it one second. He's only talking to 11, okay. number one. So he's talking okay. to 11. I thought there were 12 apostles. Well, Judas kind of <laughs> went by the wayside here. So Yeah, yeah. Some bad things happened. There's no Judas. Matthias isn't here yet. So this is that inner period between Judas and the election of the next apostle. So Judas commits suicide. Judas displays his lack of faith. Now there are 11 apostles, or excuse me, as the text says, 11 disciples that Jesus is talking to here. So go ahead. Yep. No, that's fine. That's, that's, that's a good point to make. But what is, what is the first thing that Jesus actually says to, to the disciples? All 11 of them. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, isn't that interesting, though, Willie? Because you'd think we would start just at verse 19, you know, the, the go, the get out of here, the, the get after it. Why would Jesus talk about authority? Oh, absolutely. That's the interesting thing. That's something we're always wanting to talk about, authority in government, authority at school, authority in the church. And who is the ultimate authority ecclesiastically? Who is the ultimate authority for the Christian? Who is the only true king? King Jesus, Jesus Christ, who possesses all authority on heaven. Of course, everybody's awfully you know, anxious to say, yeah, God rules heaven. But what does Jesus say here? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's interesting. Yeah, and and that on earth you could see as a uh, as part of the mission here too the the going out of the word into the world, um, so that the the reign of Christ, um, while he certainly reigns perfectly in heaven, 
Uh, he also is um, increasing his reign so that all of his enemies will finally be put under his feet. Yes, the kingdom the kingdom is an already and not yet reality. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at hand, and yet the kingdom is going to continually expand. The gospel is going to be preached under the corners of the earth to all the ends of the earth. Yeah, go ahead. No, please proceed. Oh, and I was going to say, and so what's interesting for us then as Christians is that Jesus, beginning with this discussion of his authority, um, actually informs our own mission as well. Uh, because Jesus is not just telling us to get out there and do it because, you know, well, this is our, I don't know how he would put it, our end of the bargain or something yeah, like that. Right, right. Um, he's actually saying, you have my authority when you go out and do this. Yes, this it's the charge from the king himself, this delegation, this authority given to the apostles, according to the word that Jesus has passed on to them. But I thought we were all supposed to witness, Willie. And indeed, indeed we are. I like your loaded questions. <laughs> you know, that's that's the thing. Um, everybody knows the nuts and bolts of the Great Commission, and we'll get into the specifics about baptism and teaching and the two going together and what that means. But the first question everybody has is, is who is the is to whom is the Great Commission given? Who are his witnesses and what does that look like? And what do you have to say about that? Well, I think and we can talk about this more. I do think that the commission is given to the church um, so that Christ is commanding his church to go out and to uh, bear witness uh, to the gospel. And how would we define the church? Well, the church would be the the congregation of the elect, all all believers. Yes. Um. Uh, so that so that when we're when we're dealing with the, those who believe, um, they have this duty, this charge from the king to go and to to bear witness to the hope that is in them. Yes, every Christian has that that duty to bear witness to the hope that it was that is within them and their various vocations and according to their various abilities. Not everybody is given to be a preacher. And this is, and and I mean this um, in the case of ability. We'll talk about um, authority in a minute, but not everybody can speak eloquently. Not everybody can make um, great arguments and this, that, or the other. But everybody is called to bear witness according to their ability in their various vocations and the situations that they're placed in. And that really does look different. It's sort of like the crosses that God gives us. Everybody is given, for lack of a better better words, a tailor made cross according to their various afflictions, right? That's just the Christian life. Everybody sort of suffers and is tempted differently. In a positive way, people are called to bear witness differently, depending upon where they are. And there can also be a sense in which, um, yes, all Christians have uh, the duty to bear uh, witness, but the scriptures also make a distinction between uh, the office of what it calls evangelist. Uh, where does Paul talk about that, Willie? Do you remember? Um, Paul is the office of evangelist. Um, let me let me ponder here. Keep talking while I ponder. While you ponder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Uh, um, Ephesians and 4, so, by the way. It's in Ephesians 4, it, yeah, I believe. Okay, so Ephesians 4, he makes this distinction between the office of evangelist. So, in other words, while all Christians have the duty to bear witness to Christ, um, there is a difference between bearing witness and being a missionary. 
Yeah, and I'm going to um, just go off the top of my head here. If I'm incorrect, you can tell me in the comments or email us. Check us out, facebook.com slash wordfitly. Twitter, follow us at wordfitly, whatever you want to do. Um, and Paul says, he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and some teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, or something along those lines. Yep. No, that's that's a that's a wonderful a wonderful passage. Um, and and the point is is that you know not all were apostles, not all were teachers, not all were evangelists, as he says, um, but that. God gives his gifts to his church uh, so that they will they would work together according to the degree that he gives them and also according uh, to the purpose that he gives them. And so, yeah, I mean, we should all bear witness as as the, as the case may be, and we are all called to bear witness to the hope that is in us. Uh, but there is a distinction between bearing witness and being a full-time missionary. Yeah, it's 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 very different. Um and we talk about full-time missionary, that doesn't mean the person who's necessarily getting a salary and benefits and plans and that sort of thing. But the guy who's, or the man whose life is dedicated to this call, he might be making tents um, part of the time, but his entire calling is to this. It's a particular call which comes from God. And and because it's a particular call, um, you know, you don't want to, uh, how, how do you want to put it? Uh, God has sent him to do that work, and that is his calling. Um, even if, and we should, and we should, I don't know. Help me out here. Respect it. I don't know what is the the right way of putting it. <laughs> well, the the first point I would say is that it's that it it is a mediated call. It's not merely an internal call uh, to fulfill the great commission. Mm-hmm. Okay, the pastor, the missionary, the evangelist, uh, all of those three terms very much closely related. That person does often have an inner call, an inner inclination, an inner understanding of the aptitude towards the office. However, we talk about calls as mediated because they come through God's agents, which is typically the congregation or the church. The call comes through the church. It's an external call. Yeah, and and of course, as as you point out, then we don't want to fall into the danger of saying, well, you know, I have a call to, to go, you know, to run away from all of these things and to go, you know, be a missionary or something like that. Well, do you really? <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. uh, because there were many prophets in the Old Testament who probably thought themselves uh, very um, qualified, very self-motivated, and yet God says, I did not send them. So just because you have the desire of uh, the inner call and the aptitude, um, it goes together with the the outer call the of uh, the external. yeah and, let, and and you know right here in the great commission we have Jesus himself sending these people he's physically there he's audibly calling them and charging them with this throughout acts throughout the pastoral epistles we see um the call being mediated either through the apostles sending people or the bishops sending people or through the congregation sending people or the pastors and bishops within the congregations um, administering these calls. You don't have guys just standing up one day and saying, oh, I received this call and I'm going to go out and do this. 
the call is ratified by uh, external means. That's God's chosen way of calling. But then I guess the question would, would be, Willie, um, so what do you do? Does the, the lay person who doesn't have the external call, do they just sit down and do nothing and let the pastors do all the work? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I think there's a temptation that they fall into. And this is going to be something that we'll get into a little bit more, and perhaps we should just dig more into the text right now, because when it comes to bearing witness, generally everyone can agree that any Christian can bear witness and testify to the truth and exclusivity of salvation through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. However, this becomes more difficult when we get into questions of baptism and teaching and discipleship and to who that's given. It's a question of vocation. It's a question of call. So let's take a look then at uh, Matthew 28, uh, verse 19. And we that's where we have the famous, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So what is it, you know, so go therefore, that there's the missionary call, right? Mm-hmm. Go therefore, to go out, to go and do, and make disciples. So what is a disciple? Right there. One who follows after Christ, who strives to yeah, please him. Who strives, And really, it's the one who is following Christ through abiding in his teaching. Yes. And, and what is Christ teaching? You know, it affirms faith in him, what he has taught, and the truth about his person. Okay, so, so it's two things, you know, namely, that we're believing about him. What he has taught and who he is. And that's simple enough. Yeah, and I and and with that too, then um, uh, when because G- Jesus says in other places too, you know, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and yet you know not do what I say? Uh, to be a disciple then is to you know to strive to uh, to conform to be conformed to the image of Christ, uh, to you know walk in the way of of the law, to be sanctified, to be holy. Um, it's not just uh, uh, I decided to follow after Jesus one day. Yeah, and this is something that we can understand, you know, simply through a couple of analogies. The first is a lot of people belong to political parties, right? And they vote for a certain candidate who is who, you know, ascribes to the belief of the party, and then the candidate wins and he doesn't um legislate according to the tenets of the party. So people think, well, that's not what I voted for. This guy clearly doesn't represent, you know, who who this is. Um so the ethics of the man or what the man says are intrinsically tied to the man himself. Uh, Jesus uh, fulfills all of his ethical tenets and expects us to live by the same. Impossible as it may be, and imperfect as we are, when Jesus lays down his law, he expects us to obey it as best we can. And to be to be sure, there is forgiveness where we fail, and he, and he lifts us up and picks us up when we stumble. You know, the thing is, is, a disciple of a person is no disciple if he is not accurately reflecting what is taught by the person. It's as simple as something like country music, right? You listen to Merle Haggard, you listen to Hank Williams, <laughs> you know that it's real country. You turn on a modern country station today, that ain't country, guys, all right? That doesn't sound like country. You're not talking about mama or trains or prison or getting drunk. It's not country music. It doesn't sound right. We know it's not country music. 
The same goes for discipleship. If if a person is claiming to follow Christ but doesn't teach what Christ taught about himself and doesn't teach according uh, to the ethics that Christ has laid down, he's no true disciple. <laughs> Only in a word fitly spoken do you have references to Merle Haggard in, in groups like the Florida Georgia line. You, you heard it here, right, folks. Right. <laughs> Um, hey, you're, now you're yeah, no, nah, exactly. You, you're just trying to keep it up and above. I'm just actually going for the throat here. Um, yeah. So, I mean, and you're, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the disciple is the one, um, who actually wants to do that, who's actually conforming and, and, uh, you can't just say, I don't, you know, I, I follow Jesus, but I don't actually agree with everything he says, because that's not what it means to be a disciple. Right. And and that's very different from um, seeking to understand, because you're not going to be able to fathom all the words of Christ and all the teachings of Scripture. That's just not something that we can do with our finite minds. There's always going to be more and more we can glean from Scripture. What we're talking about is a a clear rejection of what he has taught. Um, Putting ourselves in the place of the serpent in the garden and saying, hath God indeed said. That's what we're talking about here, a, a, a clear rejection of the clear teachings of Christ. Yeah. So uh, maybe to, to get back to the, the verse then, uh, we have the clear command uh, to go, to get out of here, to, to get after it. Making disciples of all the nations, so the whole world. Yep. There's your evangelistic call to go into all the world. And how do we do that? How do we make disciples of all nations? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. I, I think it's worth pointing out before we start talking about baptism, though, uh, that when we say all nations, I think people, um, I don't want to say this, people tend to to look at missions uh, to far away peoples as being, I don't know, somehow more urgent. Um, right, right. You know what I mean? I'm. It, it's this idea that, you know, all the nations, and so we have to get out, and we have to evangelize the whole world. But then all the nations includes, well, next door, too. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you and I are both in that particular situation. We're both domestic missionaries or church planners within the United States, and we're reaching out to people who are in our own neighborhoods. And in many ways, and I speak as a person who served overseas, who served domestically, it is just as challenging, if not more so, to talk to the guy in your own neighborhood about Jesus than it is to talk to the guy in Russia or Chile or Antarctica or wherever. (laughs) And that said, it's just as important to talk to the guy a couple doors down. Absolutely. To talk to the guy a couple continents away. Yeah. And so, and so we don't want to, we don't want to get so wrapped up in um, our far away neighbor as good as, and as, as important as that work is. Uh, that we actually forget our close neighbor and neglect him. Um, because as I mean, as James says, if we neglect those who are closest to us, we actually become worse than unbelievers. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing we, we, you know, we, we tend to, we tend to separate mercy work from evangelistic work and they, and they go hand in hand and the admonishment within the new Testament, even within the old Testament is when it comes to charity and when it comes to human care, it's first take care of the members of the household of faith, particularly the widows and orphans, to first take care of them. There's no way to assume then that that doesn't mean first instruct, first witness to the people nearest you, the people closest to you. 
Um, that's just a natural progression of literally any effort <laughs> within within humanity. That's just what you do. If you're going to start a business, you go and you think, is this viable here? Uh, what are the needs of the people here? You know, how do we how do we get the word out about this business to the people here in this body or in this uh, neighborhood? And uh, the church is really the same way. Now, we don't want to just couch it in uh, business terms by any means. But my point is just saying that we look at those around us first and think, how do we best reach them? How do we best communicate with them? That's just the natural way of doing things. And evangelism is so much more organic than what we make it out to be. It's so much more than programs and all these other things. Uh, so much of evangelism is simply being a human being and being a man where you are and being a faithful man where you are. Yeah, and I we can talk about this more some later too, uh, later too but uh, some of the most effective evangelism that I've found, you know, in my, in my time here in Western North Dakota has not, well, I mean, and the Lord will do what he wants, but the people who talk about Jesus and go to their friends and their neighbors and say, Hey, you know, come and see, they are the ones that tend to come, you know, because there is that connection. There is that very real personal connection uh, between the congregation and this and this uh, out, outsider uh, through through this member of of the congregation, you know we're we're entering more and more into an age where congregations or local churches seem to be more like outposts within a neighborhood than actually thriving entities within it. Um, that's that's the mm-hmm. nature of man is to just become more and more insular. Uh, we really had an advantage as far as growing churches you know, say in the 1950s or even earlier, uh, where a church was not only tolerated as an entity within the community, but an expected uh, presence within a community. And as people have retreated away from the church or away from a concept of the church as a community uh, leader, um, certain things have taken that place. You know, the church is no longer the community center. The youth soccer field is the community center. Uh, if indeed there's a community center at all, really more and more people just become sort of isolated in their own little digital worlds. And it's it's harder and harder to reach people today. It's more and more difficult um, than it would have been even 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Uh, people are just not as open. So the work of an evangelist, um, you're not only advocating for the gospel anymore, you're just advocating oftentimes for uh, you're really sort of justifying uh, your building's existence, you know, your property, your, your just why you're there to begin with and what you do. And we really have to start with basics. And we'll get in this a little bit later. We have to start with base, basics more than we used to. We can no longer presuppose um, a knowledge of Christianity, you know, despite denomination or anything. We can know we really have to start with uh, it's a zero sum game. You know, it's, we have to start at the very, very bottom and assume nothing anymore. So the task of an evangelist or really just witnessing for the average Christian, uh, the learning curve is higher than it was, um, you know, in our generation than it was in the last, say, four generations in the United States. Sure. Yeah. And I think with that, too, um, you get uh, people who either have no, like you said, have no knowledge, but you can also have people who have a very erroneous knowledge of what it means to be a Christian. And they just have this caricature and sometimes overcoming those kinds of caricatures can be uh, a challenge in itself. You know, what, what are, 
what are your uh, presuppositions about what it, you know, what the way the world works and, uh, and, and trying to deal with all of that. So, so with that being said, before we get into baptism and to teaching, because that's where really the meat of this is going to, uh, to come, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more word fitly and more Matthew 28 and the great commission right after this. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org We're back. This is the Word Fitly Spoken Podcast. I'm Pastor Willie Grills with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi talking about the Great Commission. Well, let's pick up right where we left off. Let's get to the meat of the Great Commission. Go ye therefore, make disciples of all nations. We've talked about what a disciple is. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. Let's talk about baptism. Baptism's mentioned first. That's significant. Yeah, it is significant. Um, and I think it's especially significant because we should never uh, separate the work, uh, the work of, of bearing witness away from the life of the church. And if we're, if we're keeping it in, in contact with the life of the church, well, then you are also talking about uh, the sacraments. Uh, and the first of the, the, uh, the New Testament sacraments, of course, is baptism. So what is baptism, Willie? Yeah, baptism. Baptism is a sacrament of the of the church. So when we talk about a sacrament, what are we talking about? We're talking about the means of grace, right? Um, the means by which God delivers his good gifts. Um, in the most basic terms, we, have Luther, we as Lutherans affirm, uh, I'll just quote Luther's small catechism. What is baptism? Baptism is not just plain water, but it is water, Included in God's command and combined with God's word. And what benefits does baptism gives? It works the forgiveness of sins, rescues from sin, death, and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this. As the words and promises of God declare, that's Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And it's echoed again in Acts 2, 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of of sins or for the forgiveness of sins. So that's baptism. That's God working through his promises and working through his word. Water and God's promise, water and God's word together, water in God's name gives the forgiveness of sins. And I like the way that you put that because that's kind of the way I try to describe it as well. Um, very, I guess you could say Augustinian of me, but uh, uh, baptism, well, any sacrament always has two things involved. And that is the the physical thing, um, and the the promise uh, connected to it, the word and the the promise that goes along with it. And in baptism, that of course is the the water itself, and also uh, the promise of which this would be one. You know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but also those other passages which you'd mentioned, which you know it brings the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, and that's um, something. Um, oh, uh, don't want to walk. Go ahead. Yeah, that's something that. 
is always kind of we Lutherans kind of sent uh, sort of sit in an awkward position. Are we Catholic? Are we Protestant? How do we choose to identify ourselves? We affirm justification by faith alone, justification sola fide. But our opponents or people who just you know politely disagree would say, well, how can you affirm justification by faith alone and then affirm that baptism? you know, somehow save someone. And and it's very simple. We're not saying that it's the man doing the saving. We're saying that God has established these means to deliver his grace. And we're not free to contradict God. God says in baptism is the remission of sins. And in baptism, all these gifts are given. Faith, remission of sins, the Holy Spirit. It's all part of the package. Yeah, so when when God himself uh, comes to us through baptism, uh, he is the one who's ultimately saving us. And that's what we mean by the means of grace, uh, the the vehicles uh, by which uh, God actually comes down through his word and then actually comes into our lives. Uh, but that's it. But to, to maybe to, to bring that back a little bit to mission, uh, that's important also for the mission of the church, because we're not just called to uh tally up how many times we've talked about Jesus in a day, but we are called to actually bring them into um, a life in the church, a connection to the the, the body, uh, because we are not Christians in isolation. Absolutely. Um, and perhaps the most significant thing about baptism, and this ties us into the earlier discussion about discipleship and disciples affirming uh, the teaching laid down for them, is they are baptized a with water. I think that that needs to be said. It's it's what makes a baptism water and the word of God, baptism and the holy name. So it's water. We don't need oil. We don't need other things, which are fine as far as outward ceremonies go. But the essential elements of baptism are water and the word of God, specifically the Trinitarian name, baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And that's very, very significant today, as we have many groups baptizing in other names. Uh, first, we have you know certain oneness, so-called oneness groups who deny the Trinity. <clears throat> excuse me, who deny the Trinity, and they are baptizing in the name of Jesus only. And we really don't have time to 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 talk about that and its uses in Acts just yet. But we have other groups who would say, use the name of the Trinity or use the Trinitarian formula, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but mean an entirely uh, different thing. So what are we affirming here with Trinitarian baptism? Well, I mean, you have, first of all, I think it's a good thing to bring up that, you know, there there is um, false teaching here, uh, so that when we are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, we aren't just vaguely baptized, but we are also baptized into uh, the Orthodox body, you know, that the teaching goes along with baptism. They're not separate things. Uh, we're not just kind of vaguely all baptized and then it doesn't matter what you believe. No, we are baptized into God, which means that we have become a part of the church uh, bearing the truth. Um, but then with the other thing on that too, uh, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, baptism is not something that is just, that the church just does you know, just because she wants to, you know, or because we need a, a cute little ceremony to, to bring people in. No, we have the clear command of God um, to, to baptize here in Matthew 28. And by baptizing, 
those uh, who are coming into the faith, um, they are also given that promise that, that has come to all of us. Yes, baptism is so much more than an affirmation of a decision made. It's so much more than a ceremony. It is a sacrament. It is a means of grace. It is an actual working of God upon the sinner and making that sinner into a new creation. Baptism is miraculous, whether we like to use that term or not. It's not magic, but it is a miracle. It is God doing what he said he would do according to his word. Even if we can't see it, what does the human eye see? They see sometimes a portly guy up there in a robe applying water, and they hear the words, but they don't see this new creation being born in the sacrament, even though it is true according to the scriptures. Yeah, and I suppose the the, the problem where some people run into this and they say like, oh, well, you see somebody get baptized, but then they don't actually live like a Christian. Yes, yeah. Well, that, that's, but that's the two-sided coin that is the Great Commission. It is, it is baptism, this, this introductory sacrament, which is real, which does do what it's, the Bible says it does. But there's the other side of that. There is baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Yeah, and so I think, I think we often point out in passages like Mark 16 uh, you know, it says, you know, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So, you know, faith and baptism go together. But then on the other side of, of Mark 16, he says, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. You know, so, right. so it, baptism is not, um, uh, you might have to help me out with the, the exact wording, Willie. <laughs> it's a, it's not a, a magic ticket that, you know, and then now we can live however we no, want. No, and, and it is true. Um, we affirm salvation as the work of God from first to last. However, uh, a man can reject that work that was done within them. And I don't think we should be too scared of saying that. That just because someone, I mean, even someone who is brought up in the church and their parents did, you know, according to their ability, what they could do to raise them in the faith and they had good pastors, a person can still reject all the good things given to them. But that doesn't somehow nullify uh, the truth of baptism or the truth of the teachings of Christ. That simply affirms the person in their own sin and their own rebellion. I mean, that is true. A person can lay hold of the promises, really have the promises, and then reject them to let them go and to wander away. Uh, that, that's the truth of the scripture, just the same. Yeah, and it, it doesn't change baptism one one bit. <laughs> no, no, no. God makes this promise. God does what he says. And human agency rejecting it does not nullify or does not make God a liar. Man is not going to make God a liar by his rebellion. And that's something that we need to get, that we need to understand, something that we need to accept and get used to. Um, that's, that's sort of the argument. You know, you, you get, you can have a church that's baptizing according to the Lord's command, that's teaching perfect doctrine, perfect teaching in accordance with the word of God. And yet you'll still have hypocrites in the midst. You'll still have people who, who come out of there and completely reject what's given to them. And the world sees that and says, oh, see, there are so many hypocrites in the church or so many wicked people come within the church or come from from within the church. So therefore the church, uh, what she teaches isn't true. And that's just utterly bunk. Everybody is so happy to affirm some kind of libertarian understanding of free will um, as, as somehow some sort of commentary on God as if God's bad. But really, what does a so-called understanding of free will get you? 
if a human is exercising their their uh, natural will, it is simply a will that is contrary to God. That's the only thing that that uh, our so-called freedom has, has given us is is just a rejection of the good, clear, pure teaching of uh, Jehovah God Almighty. And you know that's that's the truth. I would throw in there too, of course, uh, when Paul says that um, uh, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Yes, and so it, it's it's not a we're not neutral to God prior to all of this, and maybe that's something else to remember in. Um, when talking about mission, we're not just going to people who, you know, have never heard. Oh, well, no, hang, hang on. I got to I got to clarify what I mean by that. <laughs> uh, we're not we're not bringing a message to people that is so completely foreign to them that that um, that they know nothing about it, even in their heart of hearts. Uh, and this is kind of getting a little bit at Romans, too, that all of us, because of what God has revealed uh, clearly in nature, know him, not in a, a in a saving way, but we know him and we know that we have broken his law. Well, yeah, let's let's lay that down a little bit. When we're going out and preaching, when whoever is going out and preaching, when the called man is going out and preaching this gospel to the ends of the earth, he is going to men who at their very being, at the very in their very hearts, despite their suppression of it, have an understanding of God's law, of what God demands of them, and, 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 and really of who God is. And that's probably one of the most unpopular teachings because we tend to think of people in the darkest corners of the earth as something like noble savages, that, that they were all just fine until the missionary shows up, that there was no murder, there was no uh, lust, there was no theft, they were just hanging out, eating coconuts, floating around, it was Swiss Family Robinson, Monkey Butlers. Everybody's doing great, but the, <laughs> but the reality is, is, is every society has this in common. What did it, what don't they have in common? Skin color, language, culture, food, whatever. What do they have in common? Pretty much a general breaking of the Ten Commandments and an understanding that they've broken them. Um, an understanding that murder is wrong, that adultery is wrong, that covetousness is wrong, and even to certain degrees that idolatry is wrong. Yep. Yep. And so that's, that's what we're going into. And so what does that say? It's not merely uh, to say that, well, there's arbitrary good and bad things, but there are objectively good and bad things. And if there is an objective morality, then there is some authority that has laid that morality down and declared it to be so. I think it's worth pointing out at, at this point too, it's not even that they have this generic idea of that there right, is a God. Right. They actually know that God, the, the, I mean, even if they're not knowing that he's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they know that God has demanded this of, of them. Yeah, and this is, this is essentially a paraphrase of Paul in the, in the initial chapters of Romans, that they've become a law to themselves. They have the knowledge of God. They have suppressed it. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, Paul could not be more clear here. So we're going to a people who, um, it's, it's, it's very interesting. We know from the scriptures that they have this knowledge. And then depending on where we're going, there are varying degrees of hardness. Mm-hmm. Um, and today we're probably facing a more hardened period than we would in the past. Because, uh, you know, 
you know, if you're, you're going to be a missionary in, let's say, Alabama or New Mexico or wherever in, say, 1947, you could presuppose a lot more, or that the you could presuppose that the knowledge of the general teachings of Christianity are greater uh, than they are in 2018. In 2018, we're actually in a more similar predicament to the original apostles who were going and talking to pagans or unbelieving Jews, right? And and. Yep, and that being said, though, too, I mean, yes, we are in a situation where it is much more like the days of the apostles, yet even in the days of the apostles, Paul doesn't say then, oh, so we just need to uh, to not preach the law or, you know, that they they don't really know God or, you know, this sort of thing, but that they are still lawbreakers, you know. So, you know, even if, if the task is hard because of the hardness of heart, um, it is they are still guilty and without excuse. Right. And so so we come, we preach law and gospel, we declare these things to the people, but it's not often like in Acts, where in Acts a great speech is delivered by an apostle and the Holy Spirit works his way with thousands of people at once, and there are massive conversions, massive baptisms. The work of the missionary and the work of the evangelist, really the work of any pastor, no matter where he is, is a very slow and deliberate work. Oftentimes the baptism is the easiest part to get somebody to that point, you know, or to get a family to bring their child to baptism is the easy part. The difficult part is the teaching. And a lot of people have viewed the church this way. And, you know, you particularly have it, you know, the people that I work with um, in their culture with Latinos, the church is very strong. The church is a is sort of a, <laughs> a malevolent entity really though. Uh, so the church is there, and the church is there for baptism when you're born, confirmation, first communion, and your marriage, maybe, and certainly your funeral. So the church is important, but she's only important there. And so there's very little catechesis, there's very little understanding of the church outside of these certain rituals. And while that actually gives us a pretty good uh, jumping off point as far as catechesis goes, um, we often forget, though, that catechesis, that teaching is a very slow and often tedious process. It's a process that requires a lot of repetition, and it's a process that entails a lot of disappointment sometimes. Certainly a lot of reward, but there's also uh, a lot of discouragement because people hear stories about missionaries and they want to hear things about like visions of angels or miracles, miraculous protection from persecution or mass conversions. When really the missionary out there, his day to day doesn't always look entirely different from the average parish pastor. He's dealing with very similar things and seeking to faithfully teach God's word to the people that God has given him. And that's the work of the missionary. It's a, it's a, it's a long task. It's a hard task. It's a deliberate task though. And it's a task that requires much patience. Yeah, and uh, amen. And uh, and with all of that, uh, the the teaching um, that is calling to teach the whole counsel of God too. And so it's not just a like you say, it's not just a one and done. We're not just baptizing them and saying, okay, now you're in the kingdom, moving on to the next one. But rather that uh, mission involves an, that ongoing, often tedious, often backbreaking kind of work. But God has called man into his harvest uh, to to accomplish his purposes. Right, right. So, 
Baptism teaching. So what does that teaching then look like? Let's just talk about that for a little bit. What does um what does teaching look like in the you know for the average evangelist, the average missionary, no matter where he is? Well, I think a, a large part of, of teaching has to do with uh, the proclamation, with actually preaching. Um, the sermon is not there just for uh, entertainment or something like that. No, we are we, God speaks to us and teaches us through his word and through the, the words of the preacher. And we're talking about the every Sunday sermon, not just the, uh, not just the initial uh, sermon like we would see in Acts or something like that, not just some glorious public proclamation, but the, the regular preaching of the word in the congregation. Yep, exactly. And uh, when we have that kind of regular preaching and that regular hearing of the word, uh, because we are you know regularly gathered together around that word, um, that is where most of the teaching happens honestly, um, is in that uh, every every Sunday hearing the word and, and receiving uh, the Lord's gifts. And of course, you can also uh, have some teaching in a more uh, prolonged format, like in a Bible study or something like that. Uh, but the two aren't separated. And I mean, not they're not separated because they are uh, doing essentially the same thing. Yeah. And let's... Um... You know, the purpose of the sermon isn't always conversion, but it's often to equip, you know, fathers, mothers, and whatever, people in their vocations to to, to carry this faith into their homes and to pass it on to their children or to whomever. Uh, that's an important thing, too. The aim of the sermon, you know, you always want somebody to believe, but it's not always like a Billy Graham crusade. Uh, sermons are often instructional. I mean, it's it's certainly the continual proclaiming of the gospel, but you also want to inform them. You want to lift your hearers up and to to uh, exposit the word of God correctly for them. And and you notice here too in verse twenty where it says, "Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you." Um, this teaching is increasing towards holiness as well. Yeah. So, what would be an example then? What's what's the essence of Jesus' teaching then? Faith in in Christ Himself, faith in, and and then also I I would say a, a delight in in His law as well. Um, I mean, you, you get Psalm one coming in there. Uh, you know, blessed is the man uh, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, uh, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law he meditates day and night. Yeah, and what does it look like for Jesus? It's it's manifested in you know His summary of the commandments: uh, love God and love of neighbor. Mm -hmm. Because when when we are disciples of Christ, when we are striving to do uh, what he wants us to do and to be like him, you know, to be conformed to his image, uh, that's going to mean, you know, a desire to do what God wills generally. Um, Adam didn't want to, and that's why he, you know, fell into sin, became a a covenant breaker, as Hosea says. Um, But to walk in the way of God even if, you know, and not in a, in a perfect way, like, you know, oh, we got all of it together, but rather to str- uh, strive after more and more what it is that God wants us to do. Yeah, so let's just talk about um, general church organization, uh, how the church is organized according to uh, the Great Commission, how our services are ordered, or how, you know, we have Bible studies, we have uh, the divine service, that sort of thing. Uh, does the Great Commission inform that at all? Oh, sure it does. Um, sure it does, because we have we have the clear command uh, to to teach from the Great Commission, 
And uh, so we, and to be part of the church means that we are also, you know, regularly gathering together. Um, now, do you mean like informing in terms of the actual forms? Is that what, is that what you're getting at? Hey, here, it's, our, it's, our, it's our podcast. Let's talk about both. Let's. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's important to, to remember, you know, that the, the, uh, the third commandment, you know, remember the Sabbath day does want us to, to gather together on a regular basis. And so part of the form, I suppose, of being conformed to the image of Christ would be, you know, being in church regularly. Yes. Weekly. Yes. And we order our services around the word, around uh, prayer to God, around the reading of his word, the proclamation of his word, um, the confession of our sins according to his word, uh, the reception of uh, the forgiveness of sins or the reception of his gifts according to his word. Everything is ordered around the word of God. And ultimately, although God's word works the way it will, the way he promised, um, we do things according to his word and everything serves or ideally within our services, everything serves to instruct in the word. Yeah. And I think, I think maybe what you're getting at too, is that um, it is dangerous to take the word and then to say, okay, well, the word informs the the substance of what we're teaching, but the word actually doesn't have anything at all to say, um, to how we do things. Right, right. Yeah, as if the word is just kind of an ambiance, you know. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we we are we're teaching everything that God wants us to, but we're doing it all in our own. <laughs> right, right. We know. sort of keep we keep the Bible around for atmosphere. Yeah, that's that's not really <laughs> what we're, we're saying. And and yeah, and so and with that then, yeah, I mean absolutely. Does it inform how we worship? Of course it does. Does it inform um the way in which we worship, like the actual structure of our worship, of course it does. Um, there is a room in there. There is a freedom, but we do have to remember that uh, Jesus is the one who um, orders his church. We do these things by his authority. Right. So there we've got baptism. We've got teaching. So we're going to take a break here very shortly. When we come back, we're going to talk about the evangelist's confidence in the face of a hostile world, uh, the confidence that the word gives him, and just what that looks like in theological terms. We'll be back. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. We're back. This is the Word Fitly Spoken podcast. Willie and Zelwyn here talking about the Great Commission. We've talked about who is called and the call to go out and witness. We've talked about the sacraments, the means of grace. We've talked about discipleship and preaching and teaching. And here we come to the last part of the Great Commission and really the great comfort for the evangelist. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you, and lo, 
I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. The evangelist is not alone. The work of the evangelist ultimately is not his own. Conversion does not depend upon the cleverness of the evangelist. Conversion depends upon the word of God and God's election unto grace. Election simply refers to what, Zelwyn, when we talk about election? Um, election is is the doctrine that uh, God has chosen those who would believe in him from before the foundation of the world. It's not um, up to us to come to faith, but rather it is because of God and God alone uh, that when we believe in him. God has chosen to carry out his electing purposes through the means of grace and through the men who are called to preach and to administer those sacraments. And what that does for the man who is called ideally, is that it emboldens him. It means that he doesn't need to stoop to uh, clever tricks or to little programs or things like that. It says that the man ought be only faithful to the word of God and carry it out, and that God's work is conversion. God's work is ultimately uh, making these men like Christ, making these believers like Christ. And I think uh, one of the, the best ways to, to emphasize that for someone who is a missionary is to point out that uh, in those times when he feels discouraged or, you know, when he feels like he's, very, he's struggling a lot, like, you know, what more could I do? Um, we recognize that it is God's work and that God will, without fail, bring his elect to him. He will call them and bring them in and... Um, it's not ultimately our doing and our end of the work, as important as that is in, in the, the election of God, um, that brings people to faith. Opponents would say, well, if everybody who is going to be saved is already saved in the mind of God, then why even go out and do it? And I would counter with it's quite the opposite. If you knew that it was your cleverness, your will, your drive that brought men to Christ alone— you would either spend your entire life doing nothing else, literally nothing else, no bathroom breaks, no naps, no nothing, or you would never leave your house because you're so scared because you'd be the only, their only source of salvation or damnation. And that's a tremendous burden for the preacher to bear. Now, ultimately, the pastor is responsible for the care of souls. We're not saying that uh, and responsible for what he teaches and his conduct, but we're saying that salvation or that election does not depend upon the skills of the man per se that yeah. that look you're not billy graham you're certainly not billy sunday and i hope you're not charles finney so <laughs> that's going to be all right you don't need to be you don't need to be like these guys to be faithful you don't need to sort of drum up a lot of emotion and get a lot of big conversions um and say that you somehow fulfill the call because fidelity to the call to the missionary call is not found in the number of baptisms or the number of decisions. It's found in faithfulness uh, to the call that God's given you. It's not found in numbers. It's not, it's certainly not found in money and it's certainly not found in the numbers of converts. And I think on top of that too, when we're dealing with uh, the elect coming to Christ, um, yeah, I mean, they would say like, oh, so what's the point if, if God already knows who, who belongs to him? Um, well, for one thing, Christ commands it that we, that we go out and proclaim the word. 
On, but on the other side of it, uh, we also recognize that um, until they are called, um, they are still walking in, in the darkness of their minds. And so uh, God uses the, the preacher, the, the one who actually brings the word, as a means of calling the elect yes, to there faith. Yes, the preacher is an essential element. The preacher isn't optional. Um, you don't have this picture in the scripture where somebody... Um, in a country who's never been preached to, walks through a store door and goes, "Whoa, oh, I just got saved." No, it it doesn't uh, it doesn't happen that way. How can they call on whom they have not heard, and how can they hear without a preacher? As Paul tells us. Yep. And and so so yeah, the preacher is certainly an essential part, but it, it's it's the preacher preaching that gospel and proclaiming the word of God. It's not the preacher most clever. It's not the preacher. It's not the coolest guy. It's not the guy with the skinniest jeans, the hippest beard and the best in the church at the best coffee shop that makes Christians. It's, it's that faithful guy whom God has raised up and whom God uses to bring about his, um, his, his, um, his conversions. For lack of a better word, you forgot you forgot the tattoo on the inner arm. Well, you know, I'm just not that cool. I don't have a Hebrew tattoo on my inner wrist that's both cool and in poor taste. So, you know, I'm just not that cool. You know, you're only cool if you're edgy. Yeah, exactly. You always have to be violating some standard. Nerd, nerds, nerds, and normies are not uh, effectual uh, evangelists, according to the world. So I well, I am way off. I've got a mustache. I'm wearing uh, like dungarees and a uh, yeah. And I and I'm currently have plaid. So I mean we're we're both just complete failures. Yeah, we are not gonna be able to convert people like this though. When I tell you, <laughs> well, so, yeah, thank, yeah. thank God that it doesn't depend on us. Yeah, and that's I have a mustache and it's not waxed. And you know what though, <laughs> we've got the word of God, and so I think we're gonna be okay. We're we're gonna do just fine. Yeah, exactly. So, so there's <laughs> there's the second part of this. So so more than election or or um in addition to election, lo I am with you always. Christ has suffered in every way that we're going to suffer too. He he is not uh, a stranger to our sufferings. And so what is the suffering often of a pastor, an evangelist, a missionary? It's people uh, first, who hear the word of God and never believe it and just reject it and sort of revile the name of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has suffered that himself, and we suffer it too as his servants. Uh, also, we get people who come, and the word takes root for a time, and then they fall away. And Jesus saw that too. People followed him. He had crowds following him. And then when he had difficult sayings, or when he was turned over to the authorities, um, or when he was betrayed by the Jews, uh, he was abandoned by his own people. And, and the evangelist is going to experience that too. You had mentioned early on in the podcast about the fact that there were 11 disciples um, because Judas had been lost uh, because of his betrayal. Right. And I think I think we can see in that something of our Lord's knowing what it means to, to suffer uh, from at the hands of well those who betray him, but also one whom he taught day in and day out, um, one whom he certainly knew very well, and yet ultimately uh, the word proved unfruitful. Yes, um, church members, friends, brothers in arms in the pastorate, 
are tremendous gifts. They are a tremendous blessing in the life of the pastor, but they will fail you. They will fail you uh, where you put your trust in them. And you can trust them, and you should trust certain people. But you can't trust them in the same way that you trust uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, because men will fail. But Jesus Christ has never wronged me yet, and he's never wronged you yet. And you listeners, Jesus Christ is there for you when no one else is. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, suffered in your place, tempted and overcame it where we could not. He understands your struggles. He understands the struggle of pastors. He understands the struggles of laity, and he has not failed, and he does not abandon the pastor or the Christian. Yeah, he is our, our great high priest, to, to use the, the words of yes, Hebrews. Yes, he is our high priest. He is our elder brother. He is our king. He is our advocate. And he is our God. So in those, yeah, in those dark moments when the, the evangelist is wondering, you know, am I really supposed to do this? We have that, that greater one. Like, as you said, who will never fail us, who will never leave us alone. But we are doing his work by his authority and at his command. And so no matter what happens, even if we suffer like the apostles did and end up being even martyred, although, you know, I suspect most of us won't. But even if we did end up being martyred uh, for the faith, we know that we are seeking after a, a heavenly country far greater than, than anything here. Christ is with us to the very end. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. There is, We will be discouraged, but there's no need to despair. For Christ has not left us, he has not forsaken us, even when in our guts it feels like he has. He is not, because his word endures forever. His promises endure forever. Christ is there. Christ is advocating for us, pleading our case. The Holy Spirit is there working within his word. And we have a Father who above all loves us. The Holy Trinity working in conjunction for ourselves and for the sake of the church. It's a tremendous encouragement. It depends not upon us. It depends all upon God and the men who he has raised up and the preaching of his word. God fulfills his own promises in his own way. And that's the Great Commission. Amen. This is the Word Fitly Spoken podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org www.facebook.com slash wordfitly or follow us on Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills with Zelwyn Heidi. God love you and God bless.